The following audio is from Calvary Chapel, Monrovia. For more information, please visit www.ccmonrovia.org. Speaking in the very uh, latter part of his life. Now, it says these are the last words, not necessarily on his deathbed last words, but maybe last words that he really took time to write and reflect and speak out, even kind of in a psalm. Even what we read here tonight is something of a psalm, at least these first seven verses. But there is so much here just in these first two verses. I almost feel like we could talk on these and be done tonight, but we'll try to get through the whole chapter. But there's a lot here that David says. It's like David now coming to the end of his life and his ministry, and he's looking back over the, the... the history of his walk and life with the Lord, and he reflects and he talks about how God has worked in his life. And he says, uh, you know, thus says David, the son of Jesse. David was just the son of a shepherd. He was a shepherd boy himself in the city of Bethlehem, just a small, quaint village outside of Jerusalem. David, looking back on his life and ministry, remembers where he came from, just the son of Jesse. Nothing, you know, special about his early life, nothing noble, nothing really, uh, you know, uh, obvious that he would be destined to be the greatest king of Israel. Just a, just a shepherd boy tending his father's sheep out in the, in the shepherd fields of Bethlehem. But thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. Humble beginnings, but called and raised up and anointed by God. And that made all the difference in David's life. That makes all the difference in all our lives. It's not who we were or who we are as much as what God has called us to be and what God is doing in and through our lives. He says that he was raised up on high. David understood that all that had been accomplished in his life was by the hand of God. But he was really just a humble beginning person. You remember 1 Corinthians 1 and 26, the apostle Paul says, For you see your calling, brethren, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. God is not looking for mighty or noble or wise among men. God is looking for hearts that are after him. David was a man after God's own heart. I love that David said, you know, it's almost like, you know, I, was, I started in the shepherd field just playing the harp out there. We know he was a skillful musician, a singer of songs. I, I used to worship out there in the shepherd field. God raised me up. I became this king. I became anointed of God. I became, you know, led the, his nation, but I'm still just a psalmist, the psalmist of Israel. I'm still just a worshiper at heart. I'm still just a man who loves God. And reflecting on my life, I see that it was all of God that accomplished any good in and through my life. A worship leader of the nation, he would write so many songs, songs that we sing today. We put his words, to his lyrics to music even today. David's heart belonged to the Lord long before the Lord raised him up. Small beginnings, the prophet says, who has despised the day of small things? You know, don't, 
Don't despise small beginnings. Learn to be faithful just as David was. Learn to be a worshiper of God, even in the shepherd fields of your life, even in those quiet places where nobody's watching, nobody sees, nothing you know, distinguishing about your life and ministry, but you're just a lover of God. And even in that place, God hears, God, God knows the heart, and small beginnings, we can see what God can do with them. And uh, he, he points out that it was God who raised him up, and God that anointed me. I was enabled by the Holy Spirit. And the truth is we can't do anything apart from the ministry of God in our own hearts, the power, the enabling of the Holy Spirit. David had relationship with God. He was a worshiper of God. God used that relationship to call him, to anoint him, to equip him. But it was God that was doing all of these things. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're just branches. You cannot bear any fruit apart from me. You must abide in me. From a, for apart from me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. Jesus told his disciples after he was resurrected, he said, now before you go out to become witnesses, you're going to wait in Jerusalem because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who's going to come upon you. He's going to enable you. He's going to empower you. The Holy Spirit is going to give you what you need to be witnesses for me. David reflects on his life and he says, it was God who anointed me. Jesus says his disciples, it's still God that anoints. It's the Holy Spirit that equips and enables We look on in verse 3. He goes on and he says, The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. David just almost writing poetically here about the things that God spoke into his heart. And he speaks of a ruler that needs to be both just and a ruler who needs to rule in the fear of God. David learned quite a bit in his life as king of Israel. He'd seen all kinds of leadership. He certainly saw Saul's leadership, a man who was not just, a man who did not have the fear of God. He did at the beginning, but then he became self-seeking. He became prideful. He became more self-concerned than kingdom-concerned. And David saw the deterioration of Saul's life. He saw that leadership just go south. David saw the rebellion of his own son, Absalom, and others who, who tried to rule in their own might for their own selfish purposes. But God had spoken to me, David said, God told me the kind of leader he wanted me to be, that I was to be just, I was to be fair, I wasn't to show partiality, and that I was to rule in the fear of God, meaning I'm ruling, but I have an accountability that's above me. Yes, I'm the king over this nation, and I'm ruling, but I also am accountable by the king of kings and by the, by the ruler of my life. I, I rule in the fear of God. Peter would encourage in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 2, he writes to those in authority in the churches, and he says, Shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, 
nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Listen, and when the chief shepherd appears, that would be Jesus, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. We are any ministry, any leadership, anything that God entrusts us, we're to do it with the fear of God. Peter says, look at you guys, shepherd the flock of God, you know, sincerely, but recognize that the chief shepherd will ultimately appear, and that's when you'll be rewarded. If you're faithful and you're, you're, you know, you're diligent, you'll be blessed. If you're a bad ruler, then you'll be accountable. You, you do these things in the fear of God. And this is what David learned from the Lord. And he just talks about when that ruler is, is, is leading God's people with, with integrity and in fear of God, he says he'll be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Just the blessing of the just and God-fearing leadership. It brings, uh, you know, this clarity like the morning light without clouds, clarity and truth. After the rain, that, you know, that sense after a rain, that clean and kind of new life springing up. And so when godly leadership is in place, uh, there is this sense of truth and, and, and purity and new opportunity uh, and newness of life. Paul, Paul the Apostle, spoke of ministry, and he said to Timothy, listen, ministry is to be done out of love, from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith. Anything that we do for the Lord. Now, David was king. Some may be called to ministry. All of us are called to some ministry. All of us have been entrusted with some opportunity to serve God. It needs to be done justly, fairly. It needs to be done with the fear of God. It needs to be done in sincerity, with love, from a pure heart, from a good conscience, with sincere faith. But look on with me back to our text. Look what David says in verse 5. He says, this is how God told me to rule, but David acknowledges here in verse 5 that even in his own life there were shortcomings. Although my house, in verse 5, is not so with God, yet he has made me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? But the sons of rebellion shall be as thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. David, kind of, again, reflecting here in his last words, he first acknowledges that it was God who called him and anointed him and raised him up. God who instructed him that, that his ministry was to be done justly and in the fear of God. And then here, finally, David acknowledges that Really, even my best efforts have fallen short, and in the end, I minister, I rule, I, I do what God has entrusted to me based on the covenant relationship that I have with Him. And I think that's the truth for all ministry and service of the Lord today. 
Yes, we, we need to be called of God. Yes, God takes even the foolish and, and, the, and the feeble and, and can use them for his glory. And, and we need to do our best to walk in the integrity of, of, of our heart and, and the fear of God. But in the end, it's our covenant relationship that we have with him that gives us confidence. Because David said, my house is not so with God. God told me, do things justly and in the fear of God. But I want to be honest, me, my household, we have fallen short. We haven't been able to sustain that perfectly. And then we know, that we know David's story. We know that the ups and downs of his life. We know there were times he was backslidden. We know there were times when he fell into sin with Bathsheba and had her husband Uriah murder. We know that he endured the cost of that to his own family. His own son Absalom would rebel against him and commit sin and be then killed in battle. We know the story, and David is saying, look, God called me, he instructed me, but in the end, the reason my ministry has sustained, the reason that I have endured and remain as king of Israel is because of God's promise, because of God's grace, because of God's covenant relationship with me. He is the one that made with me an everlasting covenant. He is the one that ordered in all things and secure. This is where my confidence is, not in my ability to do perfectly what God has asked. Yes, I do it sincerely with all my heart, but in the end, God is the one who keeps these things because I fall short. And in this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? No matter how diligent we try to be in our service to the Lord, in our walk in ministry, the truth is we, we fall short. Now, this is not an excuse. This is not a, a, an opportunity to just be negligent or lazy. No, there has to be a sincere heart, a you know, the best, like we sang tonight, giving God our very best. And God can use that, but even our best falls short. And that's an acknowledgement that David had. That's an acknowledgement that all of us have. And in the end, ministry, family, God's calling on our life, these things are accomplished by the grace of God. Listen, if I had to if my confidence in being able to pastor and shepherd a church was, was kind of anchored on my ability to do it just, just perfectly and right, we would never make it. I would never make it. Now I'm trying. I'm doing my best. I'm, I'm, I'm going forward the best I know how in faith and in diligence, like Paul said, in love, with a pure heart, a clean conscience, a sincere faith. But I know in my own life there are shortcomings, there are missteps. I, I fall short, I miss the mark. Uh, and I have to trust in the, in the grace of God. And isn't that true for all of us? Isn't that true for anyone that's ever served the Lord? Isn't that true of all the disciples that we read of in the New Testament? Isn't that the truth about all the great men and women of the Bible that God has used throughout history? The Bible is so honest to reveal their shortcomings, their, their missteps, their mistakes, their confusion. Whether it's Abraham, whether it's Noah, whether it's Moses, whether it's David, whether it's Peter or Paul or James or John, 
All of these men fall short of the ultimate call of God upon their life, but yet the grace of God, the grace of God is sufficient. Paul finally would say, I am what I am by the grace of God. Now I labored, I cooperated with the grace, I gave my best, but in the end, it's the grace of God. And that's what David is saying. In the end, it's what God has promised that has brought these things to pass. He says, this is, my des- this is now all my desire, all my salvation and all my desire. At the end now, this is the last words of David. This is David coming down to the end of his life, and he says, you know what? When it's all said and done, all I really want, all I really desire is for God's purpose and promise to be fulfilled in my life. That's all that matters. Did God accomplish what he called me to do? Was God allowed to to use my life for his glory? That's my salvation. That's all my desire. Jesus would say, seek first what? The kingdom of God. What is it that you want in your life? What is it that you want the Lord to do? Is it him? Is it his plan? Is it his promise? Is it his calling? Is it his purpose? Or are we serving at times our own agenda and wanting him to serve our call and purpose? We want him to be following what we would like him to do rather than surrendering and submitting and desiring what he wants to do. And you see in David's life, this battle goes back and forth. There were seasons when he was just doing his thing. And then there were times when he would come back to to the Lord and surrender again. Now at the end, he said, listen, the reason my ministry is sustained is because God made covenant with me that he would accomplish these things. And now that's my salvation And that's all that I desire. I want to encourage your heart tonight that if God has put something in your heart, maybe a sense of ministry, maybe some hope, some dream, some future that you feel God has for you, know this, that it, the confidence that you can have is that it comes from Him. And that it's not going to be your perfection that attains it or misses it. Now, I'm not encouraging to to be anything less than diligent, but recognize that it's going to be by the grace of God that, that our lives are going to be fruitful, that our lives are going to come into those things that we maybe we have in our hearts, dreams. You know, I think God does drop desires into our heart. And sometimes we think, oh, man, I have to do it. i got to be perfect to do it. That's, that's not the way it will be done. Or we think, oh, that'll never happen. I could never do it, so don't even try. No, that's being negligent with what God's calling you towards. David, the son of Jesse, a shepherd boy, I'm going to make you the king of my nation. You're going to be the greatest king. You're going to be the lineage of the Savior, Jesus Christ. What a calling. What a knock on his heart. And all of it because of God's plan and God's promise. Will he not make it increase, David says? David's not boasting here. David's not saying, look what I have done, look what I have accomplished. David is saying, look what God has done. Will he not make it increase? Paul said, what he, has, who, he who has begun a good work in you, 
He will be faithful to complete it. Will He not make it increase? Whatever God has spoken into our hearts, those things that we believe are of Him and from Him, will He not make it increase? That's my hope. That's my desire. God, whatever you have for me, for our church, for my family, God, will you not make it increase? I'm trusting in your promise. I'm trusting in your love. I'm trusting in your grace, in your covenant relationship with me through Christ. This is our confidence. This was David's, and I think uh, there's something there for our hearts as well. I believe when our desire is aligned with his, he will bring increase. He will cause these things to prosper. But David also speaks and gives warning, the sons of rebellion. He said, now the sons of rebellion are not so. They're like thorns that cannot be touched with hands. They refuse to submit to the Lord. They refuse to allow the Lord's loving hand to guide them, to break them, the potter's hand, to mold them, to shape them. The rebellious, are they're just thorns. You can't handle them. They're unmanageable. Any, any, even the hand of God wanting to, it, it, it's, they're just not open to the work of God in their life. There's rebellion. They want their own way. They refuse to submit. I don't want what God has called or planned. I want what I want. And there's this rebellious heart. And David says, look, they're like thorns that can't be handled. They have to be managed by, what does he say there? Uh, they cannot be taken with hand. The man who touches them must be armed with iron and a sha- and the shaft and a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. And listen, David saw that too. David saw how Saul's life ended. David saw how even his own son Absalom ended. David saw what rebellion produced. David saw where it led. Be careful when you chafe at God. Be careful when you just get stubborn with God. Now, God's very loving, very patient. But I don't want to be like thorns in His hand. I want to be like clay. How about you? I want to be able to allow the Lord to shape me. Is that easy? Who wants God shaping you in a way you don't want to go? You know, who wants to be clay on that potter's wheel? You're just this lump, and He's just working you. Who wants to, you know, Lord, I've got my own plans. I just want you to be, you know, my helper. I just want you to be my, you know, the one who answers my prayers. Now, God does answer prayer, and sometimes our desires are really His desires and good things. But sometimes, let's be honest, I mean, I'll be honest, sometimes I just want God to do what I want Him to do, and I just think, Lord, just please do this. It'll be good. It'll work out. Trust me. (laughs) The sons of rebellion. You know, I just want to share with you that um, it's not an easy process to allow the Lord to shape you and I into the vessel that's useful to the Master. Vessels of honor. The, the Old Testament talks of us being clay on the potter's wheel, speaking to the nation of Israel, but I think we can apply it. I, I think it's a good image for the way God works in many of our lives. 
He's the one shaping us. He's the one working us. And that imagery, if you've ever seen how that works, I mean, sometimes there's cutting, sometimes there's, you know, just starting over and remaking, and it can be a very physical, you know, handling of the clay. But with God, it's done with love. It's done with perfection. It's done with grace and care. And, oh, we fight, we, we chafe at it, we, we, we wrestle with it. it. It seems like, God, what are you doing to me? Why? And, and how does he do these things? What, what does the, the loving hand of God, how does it manifest? Oftentimes it manifests through trial, through the circumstance of our life, through the things that God allows to come into our life, sometimes painful things, sometimes confusing things. Sometimes our plans are completely derailed. They crash and burn, and we have to then go back to God and allow Him to breathe His purpose and plan into our life. But the sons of rebellion, they'll have nothing of it. They're like thorns. (coughs) They refuse to be touched. They refuse to be remade or reshaped, and they end up really useless and only good for kindling in the fire. We think of David, and I think we can see in David the God's hand shaping him into what eventually became a good ruler. For many years, he was a wonderful king and ruler. Then he fell, and that dimmed his light some through the rest of his life. But when he returned and he gave his heart back to the Lord, we see even after that, through trial, God was able to finish out his life with blessing and with fruitfulness. But the greatest leader, the greatest example, of course, is Jesus. Everything that Jesus did, he did in submission to the Father. He is our model. He is our example. He gave up heaven to come and humble himself to become a man. He surrendered himself to the purpose and plan of the Father. And as the Son, he was faithful with his father's house. He was faithful in everything. And of course, aren't you thankful? Aren't we grateful that Jesus, even when he wrestled there in the garden, Lord, if there be another way, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Aren't we grateful today that he submitted to God's, to the Father's plan and birthed for us the fruits of salvation, and the joy that we have in relationship with God because of His faithfulness, His goodness to us. Let's go on to this next section here tonight, talking about men that the Lord will use. We see David as a man that God used, imperfect, humble in his beginnings, and yet because of God's faithfulness and promise and David's heart, returning to the Lord, his will was accomplished. But David didn't do it alone. David had mighty men that God assembled around him. We're going to look at this list tonight. 37 men will be named in all. We know that these were men that were gathered to David while he was hiding from Saul. They did not come to David when he was on the top of his game, you know, the new king of Israel. Wow, I want to help David. I want to come be on his team. He's He's the next rising star in Israel. No, they came to David at the lowest time of his life. He was an outcast. He was, you know, really being hunted and pursued by the king, Saul. 
David was hiding in caves. David had no life. And these men, they too seemed discontent under Saul's rule. It was really a ragtag group. This was not the elite. This were, these were the, the guys that just came together out of desperation and believing that God had some calling on David's life, that God had some purpose for them together. And God brought these men together. And this is the way the Lord works. He, he groups lives together. Have you ever noticed that in the body of Christ, sometimes you, you end up grouped together with people that, where did this group come from? Where did this guy come from, right? How did we end up together, right? We crosses all kinds of uh, barriers, you know, ethnically, socially, financially. We, you know, we just end up, here we are, the new family, guys work it out together, serve me together. I've called you together to do a work in, in this community. This is your church. Wow, where did... Yeah, what are, these, are, these are my mighty men, Lord. This is what we have to work with. This is, but this is how, what David had. These guys were not superstars. These were not the elite. These were the outcasts. But you see, God's not looking for the elite, God's looking for men whose hearts can be knit together and surrender to him, trust him, believe in him, and do mighty things for him. Not because they're mighty, but he is mighty. What, what was the mighty of the mighty men? It was God and his supernatural grace and power working in their lives. And God uses this. He brings, he raises up leadership, David. And then he organizes men around him, and men and women, a team that God assembles to do a work. Jesus had his disciples. Paul had his Timothys and Titus. You know, the, the men that we see worked in the Bible. Moses had, had Aaron and Miriam and Joshua. There are, and Aaron and her. And there are men that God brings around others to help. David had his mighty men to help do these things that God had called him to do. This is the way the Lord still works and organizes even in the church. I remind you Ephesians 4, chapter 11. And he himself, that is Jesus Christ, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. God called David. David had his mighty men. Jesus is now the head of the church. He has his mighty men, if you will, those around that he has called and gifted who then equip the saints for the work of ministry. God raises leadership. God then uses leadership to call and equip and guide those that he's brought together for the work uh, that he's called them to, the work of the ministry, and in this, the edifying, the building up of the body of Christ. The church is strengthened, the gospel is expanded, the kingdom of God advances, and so God uses lives together. Jesus is our king, he is our captain, he has brought many lives together to be those mighty men and women in Christ. We are the mighty men of Jesus, another ragtag group. But how important it is for us to live for Christ. The kingdom has come to us. This is our generation. We are 
the representation of Christ in the earth. It has come to us. David and his generation, it came to them. It has now come to you and me. And we're called to be mighty, not in our own strength, but in the Lord. Let's take a look at some of these mighty men, these notable leaders. First, there's going to be 37 in all, but we have a few that are highlighted. Firstly, we notice three very notable leaders. Verse 8, these are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb, Bashebeth, the Tachmanite, chief among the captains. He was called Adino, the Esnite, because he had killed 800 men at one time. And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahoite, one of the three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle and the men of Israel had retreated, he arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day and the people returned after him only to plunder. They retreat from the battle but they're there for the plundering. Verse 11, And after him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Herorite. The Philistines had gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. So the people fled from the Philistines, but he stationed himself in the middle of the field, defended it, and killed the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. These first three mighty men are noted, and they are the chief amongst the mighty men. And we notice just a few things. We, we, the first thing we notice is that these men gained their standing because they were proven in battle. These were men that were fully engaged in the kingdom work under David's rule and reign. They were not on the sidelines. These were not spectators. These were not men kind of watching what was going on. These were men that were putting their life on the line. They were proven in battle. And so often uh, what God does in our lives, He proves in battle. He proves it through trial. He proves it through the ordeal that we have to learn to walk through and be faithful in. Oh, we're, we're just, we're great Christians when there's no trial. But the true test of our faith and, and where we are spiritually is how we manage when we're in battle, when we're in the midst of the warfare. We see these men also exemplified great faith and courage. They put their lives on the line against all odds. Others were retreating. They were advancing to battle. And I like that spirit. I like that, you know what? This is what I'm, I'm going for this, you know, regardless of the outcome. I'm giving my life to this that I believe God has set me to do. These, were, these men were warriors. They were engaged in battle for their king, for their ki- kingdom, for God's kingdom. Remember Esther, when she had to go and stand before the king, Mordecai said, you've got to go in, you've got to intercede. All of her people were, her, she was of Jewish descent. All the Jews had been 
destined to be executed by Haman and his evil conspiracy. You know the story, I hope. And anyway, Esther has this position. She's the queen by the grace and hand of God. She's there for such a time as this. But if she goes in and the king uh, doesn't call her, it's it's the death penalty. She has but one hope, that when he sees her come in unannounced, he holds forth his scepter, in which case he will welcome her uninvited entrance. And she says, I can't, she says to her, her cousin Mordecai, I can't go in. It'll cost me my life. And he says, you've got to. Who knows? Maybe you're here for such a time as this. She, pray, she, she thinks, she meditates. She says, you know what? I'll go. And you know her famous words, I'm going in. If I perish, I perish. There comes that place in the heart where, you know what? This is what I believe God has set me to do. I've got to go for it. I've got to be willing to take this step of courage and faith and let the Lord work what he wants to through my life. These were mighty men that put their very lives on the line. Paul said to the disciples in the book of Acts, I'm willing to die. None of these things move me. He was warned, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go to Jerusalem. He said, quit saying that to me. You don't understand. I'm willing. Whatever happens to me in Jerusalem, I am compelled by God to go. And I'm going and none of these things move me. I am not concerned about my life. I'm concerned about what God has called me to do. They fought for the Lord and they fought by the Lord. It was a divine empowering of victory. We notice that through that that passage. It says the Lord brought about a great victory. The Lord brought about a great victory. These men did these exploits not in merely their own strength, but the grace of God was with them. The Lord brought about the victory. They simply believed that their cause was of God, that their cause was uh, of you know divine integrity, and so they put their lives out there, and God worked mighty works through them. If you want to see the Lord do anything in your life, it takes faith. It takes a step of faith. It takes a willingness to not foolishly just put yourself in some harm's way or some risky situation, but... But when God navigates you to a place where you know that this is what the Lord is wanting me to do, you've just got to take that step of faith and see what the Lord will do. God looks for faith. God honors faith. God is sitting on the sidelines, spectators. I'm telling you, there are things that I have seen God do in my life that I would have never known, never seen, never tasted, never experienced had I not taken steps of faith. And I'm no brave, courageous man of faith. I'll just say that. I'm as, you know, unsure, and, but, but I've learned that, you know what, if I want to see God work, I, I got I to step, step onto the battlefield. I got to pick up my sword and I got to go out there and fight, metaphorically speaking. We have to engage. You know, we just sent a group, uh, Pastor Barney went to Boyle Heights. I mean, let's be honest, who wants to pastor a church in Boyle Heights? Boyle Heights is, is a pretty, you know, it's, it's, not the, it's a rough neighborhood down there. But you know what? God opened a door. We, it was clear that God had opened this opportunity for us. 
And Pastor Barn, you know, I mean, we were going to go uh, as a church. You know, we prayed as pastors and, and leaders, and we said, look, this is something God's doing. We're going. We don't know how we're doing it, but we're going to go. And Pastor Barney said, you know what? I feel God, after weeks and months of praying, Pastor Barney said, you know what? I feel called to go. I said, phew, I'm glad you're going. <laughs> no, I said, brother, we're going with you. We go with you, you know. Now, I don't know what the Lord's going to do. Do we know that it's God? Are you certain that it's God? Are you sure everything's going to be just divinely ordered? And No, I do not. I believe it's the Lord. To the best that I can see, God has opened this door, and we won't know what He's going to do until we get there and start giving Him opportunity to use us, right? Now, I say it's rough. It, it's, I encourage you to go visit, help. It's not physically dangerous. It's, not, it's in a nice, very safe and secure park, beautiful setting that the Lord has given us. But it's just right in, a, in an area of tremendous need and a need for the Word of God to be taught, families that are needing the gospel. So God opens this opportunity. We've got to go. When we stepped out to plant a work up here in, here in Monrovia, what I've seen the Lord do in the last 10 years is more than I had ever seen Him do in my life, and I've been a Christian almost 40 years. I've never seen the Lord work like He's done in the last 10 years. Not in my life, not through... and. and when, you know, I've shared this testimony when the Lord was, you know, speaking into my heart to go. And my pastor and I, we were praying. He said, yeah, I think you've got to go. I said, well, can I come back if it doesn't work out? <laughs> and he said, yeah, you can come back. I said, okay, six months. We'll give it six months. I mean, in my mind, I just thought this is, I'm going to, because he was sending some people with me, just like we're sending some people with Barney. And I'm thinking, these poor people, Barney was one of them. (laughs) These poor people that are coming with me, I'm dragging them out of a really good church to come and sit, you know, the 12 of us in our new church. (laughs) And, you know, I just, this is how I envisioned it. Who's going to come? Who's going to come back? Who? You don't know what the Lord will do, but I just knew in my heart I had to go. I had to go. And God has done great things. I was praying and uh, just visiting with uh, Robert and Norma. They're downstairs ministering to the high school group tonight. You know Robert. He's our missionary pastor back from Acapulco, him and his wife. And, you know, what they've, you know, we were talking just about what the Lord had done in their life in just the last five years. Just, you know, five years ago, they weren't saved. Five years ago, they didn't even know each other. Five years ago, they weren't in church. Five years ago, they were living in the world. But during that course of five years, they started, they, they came, they got saved, they met each other, they got married, they've grown in the Lord, they felt called, they went, they spent two years as missionaries in Mexico, fruitful missionaries. The, the pastor, Pastor Hassan, whom we sent them to, you know, he loved them. He thought they were a great blessing in his church and fruitful. I mean, that's just one testimony, but thank God we came to Monrovia for the lives and opportunity. Now, of course, God will accomplish His will in other ways. God's kingdom advances with you or without you. Had I not come, 
God would have sent someone else. God would have raised up another work, another pastor, another group of people. Maybe some of you would be in another church, a better church, who knows? (laughs) Right? But you see what I'm saying? You don't know what God will do unless you go, unless you step out, unless you try something in faith, not in foolishness, not in presumption, not in your own ambition, but the Lord wants to work. And these mighty men were just a ragtag group of misfits who found a guy who knew God and a man who had a calling on his life, and God spoke into their hearts, you go with him. And as you go with him, I go with you. And God began to work and do what he did through David and the ministry of these mighty men. And they are notable in their victory. They are notable in the Lord's victory that was brought through their lives. You know, what are we doing with our lives? Are we living for him more about these three. We've got to move. I I rabbit trailed there. Let's keep going. Verse 13, a little bit more about these three guys. Uh, Then three of the 30 chief men went down at harvest time and came to David at the cave of of Adullam. David's hiding. This is when Saul is out looking for him. And the troops of the Philistines encamped at the valley at Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was in there in Beth was then in Bethlehem and David said with longing oh that someone would give me a drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem which is by the gate so the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David nevertheless he would not drink it but poured it out to the Lord And he said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is this not the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things were done by these three mighty men. This is another quality we see of these guys. Yes, they were engaged in the battle. Yes, they were men of faith and courage, but they were also men of loyalty to their king. The king is just, he's hiding, he's in the cave of Adullam. The Philistines, the enemy, are in Bethlehem. That was his hometown, remember? That's where he raised the sheep. And he knows of a well there. He knows of fresh water. Oh, man, I wish I could just, the Philistines, the enemies are there. I wish I could just have a drink of the water from that place. And these guys just overheard it. He didn't commission them. He didn't send them. They just, they were so connected to David and making sure that, you know, they were, they were honoring their king that they went, broke through the Philistines to get him that water that he just wished for. That's, you know, that your wish is my command kind of a thing, right? They heard what he desired. They heard the desire of the king's heart and they went at their own peril to obtain it. Now, David, his integrity would not allow him. He did not want this to be the new precedent. Men out risking their lives for him just when he's daydreaming. And so he offered that to the Lord. But, but still, there's something about this. There's something about being so connected to your king that whatever he desires is your command. It is the passion of your heart. If Jesus, the King of kings, longs for it, then my heart wants to bring it to him. I think this should drive our worship. I think this should drive and motivate my prayer life. 
my service unto the Lord Jesus. I want to listen. What's on the king's heart tonight? And that's what I want to employ my life to. There's a psalm, Psalm 32, verse 8 and 9. God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which much must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. The voice of the heart of God, you know, I, I want to direct you with just my eye, just my gaze. I look there, you see my face, you see what my eye is upon, and you go. David, oh, I wish I could have a drink. Those men were off. He says, don't be like the mule. I don't want to have to put bit and bridle in you. <laughs> Richard, I want you to go over here. Oh, I don't go over there. Oh, yes, you are. Go over there. <laughs> right? God wants to just lead us. Listen, he wants to guide us with his eye. In other words, that which his heart is, is looking to, that which he has purposed and planned for you. Do you think it's a bad thing that God has for you? Do you think that your plan will turn out better than his? <laughs> we don't really believe that, but sometimes we act like that. We're very stubborn. A couple of other notables here. Look with me, verse 18. Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zariah, was chief of another three. He lifted his spear against the 300 men, killed them, and won a name among these three. Was he uh, not the most honored of the three. Therefore, he became their captain. However, he did not attain to the first three. So this is another mighty man who made some rank, but not like those first three. Benaiah was the son of Jeho Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man of Kabzeel, who had done mighty deeds. He had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. He also had gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. He killed man and beast, and he killed an Egyptian, a, a spectacular man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, excuse me, so he went down to him with a staff. This is a, a, a spectacular man with spear. He goes down with a staff, wrestles the spear out of the Egyptian's hands, and killed him with his own spear. These thing, things Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, did and won a name among three mighty men. He was more honored than the thirty, but he did not attain to the first three, and David appointed him over his guard. So these men were also notable, and they were honored. As, a, as one became a captain, one was appointed over the guard. They were faithful, and they were entrusted with more. That, of course, is a, a biblical principle. Yet they did not attain to the first three. The other three demonstrated even greater loyalty, greater courage, greater faith. Now, ministry is not a competition, but there is something about faithfulness and allowing the Lord to work in your life that opens up more door and opportunity for your life. If you're not faithful with where you are, guess what? You stay there until you learn how to manage what God has put before you there. If you're faithful, you go to the next chapter and God begins to work in your life there. And so we see that some attained very high, some better than others. All of them were mighty men. All of them were used by the Lord. But there seems to be some level of faithfulness that's being rewarded here. 
Now, Jesus would teach about greatness as well. I'm moving quickly now. We're going to close here. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus says this in verse 25, calling to to his disciples. He called them to himself, and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. He does not quench the desire to become great amongst God's people, but he tells you how to do it. Let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In the kingdom of God, in the church, in the body of Christ, Jesus encourages aspiration to be great, to be a leader, to be, you know, uh, first among others, but he says this is how it's done, through serving, through lifting others up. That's how you become great in his kingdom, just as Jesus, who gave the greatest sacrifice, his own life, as a ransom for many. He died for our sins that we might have life. He has now been given the name above all names. We won't read these last mentions, verses 24 through 39. The list goes on, a bunch of hard names to pronounce. But I will skip ahead just to the final verse. Notice with me, notice another name that appears on the list of David's mighty men. And Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. Uriah the Hittite. We all remember him, right? That was Bathsheba's husband. That was the one that David committed adultery with his wife. That was the one that David conspired to have murdered out on the battlefield. Uriah was one of David's mighty men. You, you kind of get the picture of how, how greatly David's heart had fallen, that he would take not only this man's wife, but also his life to cover his sin, even one of his mighty men, one that was so loyal to him, one that was on the battlefield every day for him, even that could not stop David in his selfish pursuit. But I think now he's listed here. That name would appear on every list that David would, would ever review concerning his mighty men. And it would be a reminder to David, not only a warning of his missteps, to never repeat, but also a reminder of God's grace and mercy. Remember how he started this. My kingdom, my what God has done in my life is because of his promise and covenant with me, not because of the greatness of me or my house. David knew that it was grace. But it's also kind of an honor to Uriah, isn't it, that he's listed here. I don't think it's coincidence that he's listed last, something significant, something of importance, his name being mentioned. You know, he was just the guilty, or just the the innocent victim of David's guilty sin, but not before God. Your Father in heaven who sees in secret will reward you openly. David impacted many lives with his life. His service to the Lord had great great reach and impact. 
And of course, he was just the forerunner, just the shadow, just the type of Jesus Christ. And think of his life and the impact that his life and his faithfulness have had on so many. Here's how the Apostle Paul spoke of the impact of Christ upon his life. And we'll close here tonight. Worship team, if you'll come, we'll close quickly with a song. Galatians 2 and verse 20, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you tonight for these reflections of David at the end of his life, how he speaks of humble beginnings and yet a faithful God who took his life, even his broken and frail and imperfect life, but because of your promise, because of your grace, you were able to use his life to impact a nation, to impact generations to come, to impact even our lives here tonight. And we think of his mighty men, those that you put around him, Lord, to serve with him, to help in the work. And we see how their, their lives were impacted by David's calling. And we see, Lord, mostly tonight, how our lives have been impacted by Jesus and his calling. And as our heads are bowed here tonight, I do want to give opportunity, if you're here tonight and, and you need to respond to the word tonight, maybe you're here tonight and, and you just need, like the Apostle Paul, you, you just need to give your life to the Lord. You recognize that Jesus died for you and your sins and you've never received that. And tonight, by faith, you want to receive Christ. I'd love to pray for you. I have one other prayer request tonight, but before I do that, if you're here tonight and you want to receive Christ, you've never received him. Anybody here tonight, the Lord's speaking to you, you want to receive Jesus tonight, I'm going to ask you just to raise your hand and I'll pray for you. Anybody here tonight? God bless you in the back. Anyone else? Lord speaking to you. You want to receive the Lord tonight. Just before I pray, anyone else? Let me pray for this one heart tonight. Lord, for this heart responding to you tonight. I pray that they would come to you by faith and they would simply say, Jesus, please forgive me of my sin. I want to turn from the way that I'm living and I want to live my life for you. I don't want to be like the, the rebellious. I don't want to be that like thorns that can't be handled. I want to be clay in your hand, God. I give you my life. Cleanse me, forgive me, and lead me by your love and by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Calvary Chapel, Monrovia. To view and listen to more sermons, please visit www.ccmonrovia.org.